Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through Mark chapter 11, verse 11, with Pastor John King. So, but thank you. Uh, you know, it, it, hey, again, I said it this morning, I want to thank each of you for, you know, we've been through, like everyone else in our society, we've been going through this stuff. I mean, the hits just keep coming. And I don't need to remind you what they are, but thank you for being so faithful to support this local church. But what you do is you send a message to the world. You send a message to your neighbors when they hear your car starting up every morning. You send a message to this community here around us. And you send a message to our government that says, we're not going to give up our right to assemble. You know, All the things that happen, it's because you guys make it happen. And the Lord is the one who impels you. He's the one who moves your feet. You know, man makes his plans, but God guides his steps. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we are going to continue, wouldn't you know it, in Mark chapter 10. We're going to finish chapter 10 and we're going to get into chapter 11, the first 11 verses. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 46, and that'll be our message for today. While you're turning, I'm just going to go through quickly. Last week we, we saw a very determined Jesus as he led his disciples up from the Jordan River Valley towards Jerusalem. It was such a notable change that his disciples were amazed. Instead of walking with them, he went before them like a man on a mission. But the Lord is never uncaring or unaware of his followers' concerns. He takes the twelve aside, and for a third time now, he predicts his coming death and resurrection with more clarity and detail than previously. He informs them, first of all, of the place where this is going to happen, Jerusalem, the place they're heading to, and the fact that the scribes and chief priests will condemn him. They'll be the ones that will condemn him to death. But the Gentiles, the Romans, were going to be the ones who were going to carry out the humiliating and cruel process. They'll be mocked. He'll be scourged, spit upon, and then crucified. But as always, he concludes by assuring them and assuring us the fact that he will rise again, and he has risen again. Now, amazingly, we know that Jesus was on the way to secure the salvation of many. You know, the reason he was on a mission was because of you and everything that he's done in your life to to save you and all the many, through all the, the years that he's brought to faith. But at the time, his disciples were unable to grasp what was about to happen. Thousands were now headed into Jerusalem like they did every year for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Yet their Messiah, the Son of Man, would soon become the Passover Lamb. He would be the sacrifice. The ultimate and acceptable sacrifice that alone would satisfy God and bring an end to the symbolic sacrificial system. This led us to see the reaction of his disciples. Two of them, of course, the sons of thunder, John and James, along with their mother Salome, were preoccupied with this personal ambition. They were asking Jesus to give them special consideration in heaven, requesting to be seated at his right and his left hand. Jesus responded gently and truthfully to their selfishness. And he said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? 
And their reply was, oh yes, of course we're able to, no problem. It revealed the true nature of their condition. They had such worldly ambitions, they thought they could do whatever was needed to get to their rightful places as they saw it, to have these places of prominence. Now aside from alienating themselves from the other ten apostles, who were very angry with them about what they'd done, they were in need, just like you and I, of some very wise counsel that can only come from God himself. So Jesus explained once again the importance of serving others, even at the expense of denying your self-interest. He says, whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, we learn from Jesus once again that in God's kingdom, greatness is measured not by the amount of authority that we exercise, but by the amount of service that we render. The greater the service that is rendered in unselfish humility, the higher will be the standing of a person in God's kingdom. Today we will go to Jericho. We will witness Jesus' final healing miracle in Mark's gospel. And most importantly, we're going to see another lesson on salvation and discipleship. And after that, we'll catch up with Jesus as they draw near to Jerusalem and they enter the town of Bethany at the Mount of Olives for the final preparation, leading to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the temple. You see, it's getting real, folks. It's getting very real as we enter the Passion season. So let's read our text for today. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 begins. Now they came to Jericho... And he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, which means master, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Chapter 11. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on, no one, or on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way, and they found the colt tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, 
Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, we thank you once again for your work, Lord. We ask, Father, that you go before us in your word. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts in only a way that you can. So, Lord, as we enter with you, as we follow you on the road to Jericho this morning, guide our hearts and minds. Show us what you have for us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, today's message, it starts out with a man exercising what you might call blind faith, literally. And it's a cry for mercy. But notice first that they had come to Jericho. This is, this, the name of, for Jericho is called the City of Palms. It's also called uh, a place of fragrance. It's a distance of about 18 miles from Jerusalem. It's sort of a little paradise that featured these royal gardens with roses and sweet-scented balsam wood plantations. The wind would carry the perfume scent for miles around. I hope you don't have uh, allergies. Beautiful place, yes. Unfortunately, the sinful condition of this world robs us of that joy sometimes, of the scented flowers. You, you can smell them now in the spring. You can tell it's springtime. This fertile, luxurious city became a favorite resting place for Jews headed for Jerusalem, writes one uh, writer. They needed, the reason they, stopped, they would typically stop here at Jericho, was that they needed to gather their strength. Because pilgrims faced a 2,950-foot climb in less than 20 miles along a craggy, serpentine road lined with bandits. You're going to go, you want to go to Jerusalem, you've got to go through this really windy road climbing up the mountain. And in the hills overlooking, there's plenty of bandits. Now Jer Jericho was primarily known for its famous walls, which tumbled down in Joshua 6, at the blast of the horn and the sound of the Israelite battle cry. The biblical account depicts a violent military campaign initiated by this victory. This campaign created a reputation for the Israelites that became the standard by which all subsequent campaigns would be described and measured. So Jericho, of course, from the Old Testament, is very famous in that regard. And notice, he came to Jericho, and then the text reads, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. So here we see Jesus, you know, he's, he, he's going to actually spend the night there, but he's really on the move. He's still continuing on the move. And he's, he's leaving behind, you know, two plus years of ministry in Galilee. And he's going to Jer uh, Jerusalem. He's going to go before him. And what he has is the final act of his life, really, if you think about it. The final, you know, finished work on the cross that will take place. Alfred Edersheim, who, if you ever have a chance to read any of his work, he was an author in the 1800s. Come see me and I'll show you where to find his work. Um, he was a, uh, a Messianic Jew who had a deep and a great understanding of Jewish history. He wrote this. Uh, he said, Jesus, he was uh, of Jesus, he says, he was of set purpose going up to Jerusalem, there to accomplish his decease. Can you imagine that? 
to give his life a ransom for many. And he was coming, not as at the Feast of Tabernacles, but he was coming, which was private. You know, times before when Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, a lot of times he went privately. But openly at the head of his apostles. Here he was leading this troop. And he was followed by many disciples. In fact, they were kind of a festive band going up to the Paschal Feast, which was another name for the Passover, of which he himself would be the lamb. He would be the one to be sacrificed, as we've been saying. And it was customary for the local citizens to line the streets. As the pilgrims would come through, it would be like an annual thing, you know, whenever all the folks would be coming down from Galilee, and they would come through Jericho, and the people would come out and greet them. Uh, they would, they would, uh, it was a very special occasion. And because of Jesus' fame, you could just imagine, you know, whenever a celebrity comes to town, um, a lot of times people whisper, hey, did you know so-and-so's in town? Hey, guess who's going to be there tonight? Well, the same thing would have happened with Jesus of Nazareth, because he was, by this time, extremely uh, well-known around the nation Israel because of all of his work that he'd done, all of his miracles. So this was a very special time, and no doubt there was a large gathering of, of Jericho's people, hoping to get a, a, just a glimpse or maybe a blessing from this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Luke's Gospel records that one of the onlookers was a tax collector named Zacchaeus. You may have heard of him. And Zacchaeus had a, a little bit of a problem because he was very short. This is nothing disparaging against short people. But he, couldn't, he had to climb a tree to actually get a, a, to see uh, Jesus. And uh, Jesus noticed him, and he called him out publicly, and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to spend the night with you at your house tonight. Now, this riled up the crowd, because Jesus had gone to be a guest with a man who was known as a sinner. He was a tax collector. Any event, side, side note there. So the very next day, what we see here, when we get to blind Bartimaeus, he's just spent the night with, uh, at Zacchaeus' house, and we see in your text, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Bartimaeus. The, the, the name, his, his name literally says, means son of Timaeus. So, right, you know, you just have to read it. And Matthew records two blind men instead of one, but apparently Bartimaeus was the most prominent. Now, Timaeus, his father, means highly prized. So he was he had the same, he was a son of a highly prized or honorable man. But he was blind. Blindness was a very common illness during those times. Um, you know, it, it, because of medicine. We mentioned a couple months back talking about blindness in the time of Jesus' uh, uh, period of history. And we know that today the World Health Organization says that 80% of all visual impairment now can e is either preventable or treatable. But back in that day it was very, very common to have blind people. And if you're blind in that kind of a situation and you don't have a family that can take care of you, you are reduced to begging because you're often an outcast. And the Jews, unfortunately, they believe that a person who is afflicted with those kind of diseases, leprosy and blindness, well, they had to have been cursed by God. You know, they must have done something, either them or their family members. And this is contrary to God's law. If you look at Leviticus 19.14, talks about how God feels about it. You know, you always want to go back to the Bible to see how God feels about the truth. 
And it says, You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am your Lord. So they weren't, even though they had uh, got into this very bad habit of shunning and, and uh, you know, outcasting people for their diseases, uh, it wasn't right. But they would position themselves, the beggars would position themselves where they knew there would be a lot of foot traffic. And here it was there. And so here we see him. He says, and when he had heard, Bartimaeus, he had heard that Jesus of Nazareth was there. And so he began to cry out. He says, uh, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, he's hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, but he's referring to him by his messianic title, son of David. And he began to cry out. Now, this wasn't just a, you know, a, a quick shout out. This was an impassioned, loud a shout or actually like a scream at the top of his lungs. This is what the word means. He cried out to the Lord. He cried out to him. You may have been in that place in your life. Maybe, you know, nobody was around. You were in a very quiet, secluded place or in your car. Nobody could hear you. You may have cried out to Jesus. I know I have. I've cried out to the Lord in anger and frustration over life. But this man was crying out and he was saying, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Jesus' human ancestry is traced back to King David, of course. He would be the king who would bring the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and to David. Jesus was a descendant of David, as were his earthly father, Joseph, and mother Mary. Matthew 1.1 begins, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he says, Have mercy on me. L-A-A-O. Why mercy? Why was he crying for mercy? Well, two reasons, okay? One reason was because what the society had done to him. They'd made him an outcast. And they had made him believe that his blindness was because of his sin. But another reason is why he cried out for mercy is because we all need mercy from God. Because we're all sinners. So while his curse may not have been due directly to his sin, he still had a sin nature. John 9, verses 1 through 3, Jesus addresses this problem of assigning sin to people's afflictions, especially when what they're born with. He says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the, that was the theology of the day. And Jesus answered, and he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, every work that God wants to do in your life, in my life, is ultimately to bring glory to him. Whether we go through trials, whether we have the ups and downs, whether we have the victories, and ultimately our salvation, it's all, and our time with him in heaven, it's all to bring glory to him. But this man, he cried out for mercy. And he didn't ask for anything else at that point. He was blind. He was a beggar. He didn't cry for housing. He didn't ask for clothing. He didn't ask for food. 
He cried for his most basic need to be met. And that's mercy. Again, it's what we all need. The most of all. Before mighty God. Before God himself. One writer put it this way. Sitting there by the road as Jesus passed by, he had no way to know that it was Jesus because he could not see him. Okay, so he had no way by his sight to know him. He could only hear the people walking and talking. And when he heard people talking about Jesus, he believed that it was him. He believed and trusted what he was hearing. A man must believe the report, the testimony about Jesus. All Bartimaeus ever knew was what he heard, because he couldn't see. He had never seen or been around Jesus. He only knew the testimony people were sharing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David. And you know what? He believed that testimony. Think about that in your, your walk, how you heard about Jesus. Somebody said, look, I, I, you would not believe what's happened. My life has changed radically. I used to be this way, and you know how I was. But the Lord has given me a new heart. You see, that's your personal testimony. And this man believed it. And if you heard somebody's testimony that eventually led to your faith in Christ, you would believe it too, because you'd know it was real. And then when it happens, you know it's real. In fact, you know that you know that you know. That it's real. You may not be able to explain it the way people would like you to explain it. But there's no denying the fact that you have been changed. That the Lord has redeemed your life. But notice in verse 48, many warned him to be quiet. Be quiet, he's busy. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now why would they want him to be quiet? Well, one is they considered him an outcast. We, you know, we don't talk to those people. Leave them alone. You know, whatever it was, they had in their minds, they considered him an outcast. And we don't know whether this was just the disciples saying this or just the people in the crowd. It, the text doesn't tell us. But he says, son of David, again, have mercy on me. You see, he wouldn't be silenced, despite the fact that there were many voices raised against him, yet his faith stood strong. When you walk with Christ, when you walk with the Lord, whether you're approaching salvation or whether you're walking as a Christian, there are many voices that are speaking to you. You guys know that. I'm not the only one that's weird in this room, okay? <laughs> there are many voices speaking to you. The lies of the enemy are everywhere, and they find a way into your mind and you have to stand faithful and that's why we have the word of god that's why we teach god's word here at this church notice though that persistence will always grabs the lord's attention you say he hasn't got my attention yet well you need to be more per persistent you say that's easy for you to say john well i can only say it's called faith i trust him why doesn't god always meet our needs immediately well, maybe there's five reasons here that you guys can use, and it helps me, and it would help you. There's five reasons right now we can, we can list, if you're taking notes, why God doesn't always meet our needs immediately. Why doesn't He always come to our rescue when we think He should? 
For one, having to persevere or wait sharpens, and it increases and it grows our faith. It teaches endurance, experience, and hope. It teaches endurance, experience, and hope, having perseverance. Having to persevere sharpens and makes us more aware of our minds. You know those many voices that are talking. It gives us more time for thought and meditation and for the searching of the truth about ourselves and our needs. It focuses on real needs. The Lord will show us something you might think was a major emergency, you know. You give it some time, you go before the Lord, you speak out, you ask Him, the Lord, to help me through this process, and you know what? Sometimes it's just not that big of a deal. Having to persevere, number three, teaches us to pray and to seek God more. Well, that's the truth. That is the truth. It creates more awareness of our helplessness and our need for His presence and His help. It necessitates more fellowship and deep communion with Him. You know, we gather every Sunday morning, we have a time of prayer. We hear praise and prayer. We have a prayer group that meets on Tuesdays. We have the internet, and I send out prayer requests. You have your close friends and family. You need the fellowship. That's why you're here. Having to persevere, number four, gives us more part in his work and worship. You're not just a bystander. It creates a sense within us that you are having a greater part in what God's doing. This is not a need on God's part. But it's a need on our part. Serving him is a great privilege which he allows us to do. You know, we get to do this. We get to come before the Lord. We get to petition him. And finally, number five, having to persevere allows more time for a greater number of people to be reached with God's power. Believe it or not, you know, you may go through a very long struggle in life. It may go on for years. And people see that. Perseverance is a greater witness for God. You say, but I want my needs met right now, Lord. Well, when God does answer and moves, more people are going to be aroused to observe God's working. You know, you think about the times you've been praying for that prodigal child or the situation to change or whatever it is. And, and I'm not going to say God doesn't work quickly. He does sometimes. But a lot of times, you know, many people in your life are aware of your prayer that's been going on for a long time. And when the answer comes, the rejoicing and the, the wonderful, you know, communion that you get from that is very powerful. And it reaches people, believe it or not. Romans, Paul wrote this in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, talking about perseverance. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, it's coming. God will be glorified through this. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That whole thing, that, that cycle of life, the ups and downs, and what it produces in your life, 
The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for that, it would be worthless. We wouldn't even need to be here. But God the Holy Spirit has been poured out in your hearts to overflowing because now you know how to minister to people who are going through a struggle. Now you can claim victory and you can testify of God's work. But it takes perseverance. So the question I have for all of us, those online and everybody, the lesson is, what is stopping you from crying out to Jesus? What is stopping you from giving him everything? Why are you holding it in? Why do I hold it in? Have you heard the testimony of others? Late yesterday, the ladies had some testimonies. Powerful experience for those who were here for the ladies' tea. A very powerful experience. It's encouraging. Or is the crowd of your life, or the Holy Spirit of God, is, he, is the crowd of your life speaking louder than the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He doesn't shout into your brain, into your heart. So is the crowd of your life, the voices, are they speaking louder? Are you allowing, allowing them to speak louder in your life? Or are you getting alone with God and hearing his still, small voice? Next we see a lesson on salvation. Because Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And this, this guy is sitting there, he's shouting at the top of his lungs, have mercy on me, son of David. And people are telling him to be quiet and Jesus stops in his tracks. He stops right there and he commands him to be called. You see, Jesus was willing to pause his determination to go to Jerusalem and take time to minister to this man. What a reminder for us, oh busy people that we are. And he commanded this man to be called. Now apparently the crowd was very struck by this abrupt change. Why? Because now they're like, Hey, blind man, <laughs> be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. Notice, they changed their tune. They were telling him to be quiet, and they're like, no, 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 wait a minute. He stopped. Go. Go. And the man, look at his reaction in verse 50. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. He rose and came to Jesus. You know, he wasn't going to let, now that he had, he, had, he knew that he had Jesus' attention, and he wasn't going to let anything hinder his approach to Jesus. He was eager to reach Christ. You know, we have a benefit that this man did not have. We have God the Holy Spirit living within us. We have 24-7 access to our Lord and Savior. We have, as we said this morning earlier, we have access to the throne of grace. Anytime we need it. Paul would say, pray without ceasing. So we can come. But this man was going to take full advantage. And so he rose and he came to Jesus. But a lot of times for us, we're hindered. We, you know, we've got a, a heavy weight on us. Whatever that stuff is, it's kind of crowding us out. The weeds that are growing up in our life and in our heart. Ephesians 4.22 says, for you and I, that we should put off concerning your former, former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. A lot of times we are our own enemy, our worst enemy. So Jesus answered him and said, what do you want me to do for you? 
And Jesus thought, what do you want me to do for you? Remember, he had said that earlier. Uh, when they, when they, uh, John and James had come with their mother and they wanted the special backseat pass to a certain seats in heaven. And uh, he says, what do you want to do for me? But here he says the same thing. What do, you want, what do you want me to do for you? Even though Jesus knew this man's need, he wanted him to make a personal confession of his needs. He had already asked Jesus for mercy, so he was aware of his sinful condition. You know, that, when we approach God, we oftentimes approach him um, acknowledging our sinful condition. That's a great way to enter in prayer with the Lord, not just to come barging in, <laughs> but to acknowledge our sin and our needs. And so he wanted him to make a personal confession. And he needed to confess his faith in Jesus' ability to heal him. Very important. And he needed him to do it here in a public setting before others. If you come to know the Lord as your Lord and Savior, Romans 10, verses 9 through 10 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You need to come out with it. You need to make that confession. You need to say, yes, Lord, uh, heal me, help me. I need you. I need my sins forgiven. I believe and I trust. I have faith that you can deliver me. And so Jesus asked him, uh, he says, what do you want me to do? And Rabboni, he says, he answers, he says, Rabboni, which means my master. Now, what is this saying to you? This is telling us, this, is, this man is being saved right now. We're watching it. He's expressing his personal faith. He's not calling him son of David anymore by his messianic title. He's calling him my master. He says that I may receive my sight. This was a specific request, and it received a very specific answer. Look at verse 52. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. Important thing to note about that word, made whole or made well. If you have a King James Version, it might say made whole. But the Greek word is sozo. And that means he has not only been delivered from his physical affliction, but he's also been saved. It's physical and spiritual healing happened right then and there for this man. So the power of the spoken word from the Lord, he didn't have to scream or shout or go through a recipe of magic formulas. Jesus said, go your way, your faith has made you well. And so you, you realize that, you know, sometimes it takes a lot of courage to come before the Lord and to, and to bow a knee and even to do it in a public setting. But the Lord is so gentle and kind. And he says, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. You see, he's 100% cured. He's not just partially cured, but he's 100%. Jesus' healing and deliverance for us is always 100%. You are 100% going to heaven if you know Jesus. It's not maybe I'll get there. You are 100% redeemed. It's never partial. But notice he said immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. This is a lesson on discipleship. And this is where you need to ask yourself the question, 
Why do I follow Jesus? Why do I follow the Lord? Four things, four reasons, scriptural reasons why you follow Jesus. Why you continue to walk in faith. First of all, you have a heart of appreciation. Colossians 3.15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. You have a heart of appreciation. That's why you follow Jesus. The next reason you follow Jesus is because you have a genuine conversion. Luke 9.23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You have a genuine conversion. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do the things you do if you hadn't known the Lord. The third reason why you follow Jesus is because you want to grow. You recognize that you're young in the Lord, whatever it is, young spiritually. Matthew 18, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want to grow in the Lord. And the fourth reason why you follow, you and I follow Jesus is because of your faithful testimony and your witness. Your faithful testimony and your witness. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Those are the reasons why you follow Jesus. You have a heart of appreciation. You've had a genuine conversion. You want to grow in the Lord because you want to be a faithful testimony and witness to Him. You see, it starts you know, with all those things, that heart change, and it ultimately leads to glory is to God. The glory goes to Him. So my question for you today, here today or online, is have you made that personal decision for Christ? Have you done it? Have you heard His call? And if you have, are you following Jesus down the road of your life? And more importantly, where is He taking you? What's He got for you? What call does He have on your life? If you continue to follow Him, you say, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Continue to follow Him. And the things that you do will bear fruit for him. You'll know. I could throw up a whole bunch of things, but the Lord has a special plan for each and every one of us. Which brings us to now the triumphal entry in verse or chapter 11. See, we've now entered the last six chapters of Mark's gospel. The last six chapters of a 16-chapter letter. It was divided by people, but the last six chapters are going to talk about this week we call the Passion Week. From Palm Sunday to Eastern Sunday. Because the time has come for the King of Kings, the King of the Jews, the heir to David's royal line, with all the symbolic and prophetic importance, the time has come that he now make his entry into Jerusalem. Yet, Not as Israel in the flesh expected its Messiah. Not in the proud triumph of a war conquest, but in meekness and in peace. The same way he comes to you. Verse 1, 
chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, a couple of small towns, if you will, sitting very close together. Bethpage means the house of unripe figs. It's the name of a small village between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it's close to Bethany. Bethany means house of dates or house of misery. I don't know which one you want to choose. Maybe a bad year, it's a house of misery. Sorry. At the eastern slope, this is where Bethany is located, on the Mount of Olives. We're going to have fun at dinner today, aren't we? <clears throat> if I'm allowed to sit with you guys. Uh, it was home, Bethany was home to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Luke records it as the location of Jesus' ascension into heaven. You know, when he went out to be ascended into heaven, he went back up towards the Mount of Olives, and, and that's where he was ascended before the, uh, the, follow, the apostles. And we know that Jesus preferred to stay there when he came to Judea. John 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, in whom had raised from the dead. So here he's sitting there having a meal with a man who he had raised from the dead. And there they made him supper, and Martha served him, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So we know that Jesus would go there and he would spend the night often. In fact, all through the early part of the Passion Week, he will return to Bethany that night after he does his work in the city. Now he's coming up at the Mount of Olives, also known as Olivet. It's a single peak about two miles long. The, the whole ridge is about two miles long, and it borders the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And then right at the very center of the peak, you have about a 2,700-foot uh, rise, and it looks directly at the Temple Mount. Isn't that amazing? It's 2,700 feet above sea level, and it sits actually about 300 feet above the city. Would you love to go there someday? overlooking the Kidron Valley and then Jerusalem, the city. And he sent two of his disciples, as we read, they were to get ready, uh, they were going to, when you say, well, why would he send the two disciples? And why are we going to get into such little minute detail here about what's happening? Um, there was a, The details that needed to take place before he entered the city of Jerusalem were very important. Uh, some commentators believe that Peter was one of the disciples who sent on this errand, and that's why, because Peter talked to, uh, basically told Mark what to write, we believe, in his gospel. So that's why you're getting the details. It's important to note here at this point is that when Jesus, when he visited Jerusalem as to oppose to his time in Jude, uh, Galilee, his whole ministry was different. It was different than the Galilean ministry. In Galilee, Jesus taught many people. He had the big crowds there and he taught many. But in Jerusalem, he taught them many things. Excuse me, he taught many subjects, okay? As we've seen, Jesus taught many subjects in Galilee. But in Jerusalem, he focused only on one thing and one thing only. And that was his messiahship. He spent his time proclaiming strongly that it was beyond any question he was God. He was the Messiah. 
And so he told these, these two people, possibly Peter, two of the apostles, he said in verse 2, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Very specific instructions. Now Jesus told, we're going we're to see this over and over again, but Jesus chose to ride on a donkey instead of a war horse. That would have been the thing to do if you were coming as a king entering a city. But he came as a man of peace, not as a conquering general. So the colt or the donkey was a symbol of peace and it symbolized service. And Jesus gives very detailed, he says, And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. He's, he's giving him a divine script, if you will, of what's going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen because, of course, Jesus was all-knowing. He's omniscient. And now this is the first time when he says, the Lord, he mentions himself, the Lord, the first time that Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. First time in the whole gospel. So the messianic secret now is starting to be revealed. You know, his whole... His whole reason now is, is no longer what he was doing. He's no longer, you know, washing feet and, and healing people. Now he's going to come and he's going to concentrate on the fact that he is the Messiah. And so verses 4 through 11, they went their way. They found the colt tied by the door, just like he said. They loosed it. The people asked the questions, just like he said. Exact words were, were used. Why are you doing this? And he spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. And, they, and, they, and so again, we see a divine script taking place. So again, why are these events taking place exactly as Jesus said they would? One reason, clearly, was that this was the final week of preparation before his death, and everything would play out with prophetic precision and timing. Everything that was written about him. Remember, he told his apostles, all the things that were written about me was going to happen. And everything would be precise and timed just right. Because God's in charge of that situation. And so they brought the colt to Jesus, verse 7, and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And why did they throw their clothes on it? Well, they needed a saddle. It was a rough saddle. Threw the clothes on it, and he sat on it. As soon as he sat on it, it fulfilled prophecy. It identified with the tradition. King David rode on a mule. Uh, his son Solomon rode his father's mule to his coronation. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 through 40. So he was fulfilling prophecy, and he was also doing what his, you know, David had done, and Solomon. But what prophecy did he fulfill? Look at Zechariah 9.9. 9. Zechariah 9.9, the most important prophecy concerning this event. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, they had it all wrong about their messianic expectations. Clearly, they should have known their scriptures. Clearly they would show that he was lowly and riding on a donkey. When you break that verses down, you see a bunch of things. You see really three warnings for the people. 
It says, Behold, your king is coming to you. The king had indeed arrived. You can put that scripture back up if if you'd like. The king had indeed arrived, but he arrived different than they expected. It says, He is just in having salvation. He came to save, not to conquer and rule over. Next, it says, He was lowly and riding on a donkey. The Messiah was coming in meekness, not as a reigning monarch. He was coming to win men's hearts and lives spiritually and eternally, not physically and materially, even though he did heal many. And notice it says, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Yes, the king has indeed arrived. But he wasn't coming on a white stallion. He was coming as the king of peace, riding on a young colt. Now, we know at Jesus' second coming, it's a whole other story, but we're not going to go in that today. Come out on Wednesday nights, and we'll be talking about all that for the next 31 weeks after we start. Chuck Swindoll kind of summarized it. He said this. He said, Jesus chose to ride a colt because his trip down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and into Jerusalem would mark a change in his relationship with the religious and political authorities ruling Judea. He did it on purpose. This was very purposeful what he was doing. He planned to enter Jerusalem as their king. He would assert his authority over both the throne and the temple, but he would not ride into the city in a show of force like a warrior king. Instead of riding a war horse, Jesus sat atop a symbol of peace, a donkey. This triumphal entry looked nothing like the Roman triumphus, the lavish parade celebrating a victorious general returning home. In the early days of the empire, the conquering hero rode a white war horse and wore the battle dress of a Roman general, a red cloak. Now, when he said, I'm king of the Jews, and when they took him kind of going ahead here, remember what they did? They put him in a red cloak when they they mocked him because he claimed to be a king. And these Roman soldiers are like, oh, you think you're a king? Well, here's your crown of thorns, and here's your purple garment, if you will. Here's the red cloak. Now, John MacArthur points out something we're also going to talk about on Wednesday nights here starting. Jesus fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy that day, and that is Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And I'm not going to go into detail, because we're going to be covering it. But he he fulfilled them. And what it says here basically is he demonstrated the day he entered Jerusalem was the precise date predicted by Daniel centuries earlier. The precise date. And we will see that again when we take up our study on this book of signs. So at this point, the air is charged with electricity. John records that the people who witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus, now they actually saw Jesus raise a man from the dead, and the word had spread obviously very quickly. John 12, 17-19 says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh, The Pharisees were very upset. They were trying to, they were plotting his death. And it was just like, at that time, they were like, this this isn't even working. 
The whole, everybody's showing up. So the air was charged with electricity. And people were there to see this king, the Messiah. In fact, it's estimated at this time there may have been up to 2 million pilgrims entering Jerusalem every year for this annual Passover feast. That's quite a crowd in any day. And notice in verses 8 through 11, many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is a recognition of royalty. This was a Jewish custom. It was recorded in 2 Kings 9.13. It says, Each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. This is something that they would do. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees, the palm trees spread about and on the road, and they symbolized victory by doing that. Could you imagine this big crowd of people, and people were just hacking off branches and laying them on the ground so that as he approaches, he can ride on those. You wouldn't get away with that today. And then those who went before him and those followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is the name who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Now the Hebrew, it means save now. We pray, save now. And it comes originally from when they would gather. They'd say, they had a habit of saying this word Hosanna a lot when they gathered for their feast. This wasn't something new. And so part of what they're saying comes from Psalm 118. But what it had become to mean was save now. And what they meant by that was they were super excited They were celebrating some of the features and customs of the Feast of Tabernacles, actually. But they were in this sort of frenzy. They're like, save us now. And you could see why the Romans and the the Pharisees were getting very nervous and getting very upset by what was happening. And in verse 10 it says, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, the people proclaim a messianic title. says he who is coming in the name of the Lord was the king who was bringing salvation from God to the people. So here's what the people were saying at that point. They confessed that Jesus, as the son of David, as the Messiah of Israel, whose kingdom was about to be established. They thought that this was it. They were going to come in, and at this point, Jesus was going to go ahead and just Lay the Romans to waste. Whatever garrison of soldiers were there, whoever the procurator was at the time, we know it was Pontius Pilate, they thought that Jesus was just going to go ahead and wipe them out right then and there. Put them under his thumb, if you will. And he would be the rightful king. He's come to the temple, and this is what's going to happen. We know that they were greatly mistaken. One writer said this, though. The Spirit of the Lord had here for a few moments taken hold of the masses. God wanted to give His Son this open testimony concerning His mission. And it incidentally point forward to the day when all tongues would be obliged to confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was a, it was a moment in time, and you know they were this, we see that this was a false excitement because they had the wrong motives. But there was a moment in time that would foreshadow what was going to happen at his second coming. When all, every tongue, every knee will bow and all tongues will confess that Jesus is the Lord. That's going to happen.
But what did the scribes and chief priests think about this whole profession? You'd have to look at Luke 19, verses 39 through 40. It says, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. See, they, they came after Jesus and they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Luke 19, 39 and 40. Rebuke your disciples. But notice what Jesus said to them. It says, he answered and said to them, he goes, I tell you that if these people, all these people around me, if they were to keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, God, this is going to happen. These people are going to do this because it's, prof- it's prophesied. And so even if the people didn't say a word, the stones would cry out. What were the Romans thinking as they watched this festive? Ju- they, were, they were nervous. They were thinking crowd control. They were, you know, we see what happens in our, in our country now when big crowds show up to towns and cities. And the authorities get nervous. The Romans were experts at parades and official public events, one writer says, Warren Wiersbe. We call this event the triumphal entry, but no Roman would have used that term. An official Roman triumph was indeed something to behold. If this was a real triumph and a king entry, when a Roman general came back to Rome after a complete conquest of an enemy, he was welcomed home with an elaborate official parade. In the parade, he would exhibit his trophies of war and the illustrious prisoners he had captured. They'd be dragging him behind in this procession. The victorious general would ride up in a golden chariot. Priests would burn incense in his honor and the people would shout his name and praise him. The procession ended in the arena where the people were entertained by watching the captives fight with the wild beasts. That was a Roman triumph. That was, when you look at our Lord's triumphal entry, was nothing like that. But it was a triumph just the same, because he was a God's anointed king and savior. A Roman general had to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers to merit a triumph. The gospel would conquer some 5,000 Jews and transform their lives in a few weeks. Recorded in Acts 4. Christ's triumph would be the victory of love over hatred, truth over error, and life over death. But notice what happens. Mark, he he describes this event. And right here in verse 11, it says that Jesus went into Jerusalem and he went into the temple, went straight to the temple. And when he had looked around at all things, the hour was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The other gospel writers don't record this little event that took place. You see, it brings the whole event down to earth. Because you know what, folks? All was not well in Jerusalem. And so what did he do? He looked around at all things. Jesus was scoping out the scene for his return the next day. And he was silent. And he was sad over the condition of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. He wasn't happy about this this procession because he knew what was going to happen. And then it says here, we see in the text, the hour was already late, but he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Today they would rejoice, the crowd would rejoice and celebrate their Messiah's arrival, but tomorrow he would declare judgment. And if you want to know the rest of that story, you have to come back next week. 
we're going to go ahead and we're going to start to take communion. Uh, if you guys could prepare for that. Um, so having just read this uh, great celebration, this triumphal entry, you know, that Mark illustrated for us, the start of his Passion Week, knowing that the people were riding high on a great misunderstanding of who Jesus really was, knowing that they would reject him and that God would eventually bring a devastating judgment upon their nation. They wouldn't eventually return to Jerusalem until 1948, folks, after the things had transpired. So this leaves you and I in a very humble position, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, because as a body of believers, as his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, we do get to share in a genuine and true celebration right now as we take communion together. A few days before the events we just looked at today, Jesus gave his disciples the ordinance of communion. To be able to look back in remembrance of him and his sacrificial work on the cross, but also to be able to look forward to a great reunion with him in heaven. That's what we celebrate right now as we get ready to take communion. So if you're a born-again believer, you've received Lord Jesus as your Savior, you're welcome to join us today and celebrate with us. So as we prepare to take communion, let's bow our heads. I'd like to pray, and then we will stand. And when I stop praying, we would ask that you guys come up uh, and just re quietly return to your seats and have a seat again. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Lord, we thank you that we have give, been given the privilege to celebrate even now in a true way. Lord, there's no longer a misunderstanding about who you really are in our hearts and minds. Our lives and our testimonies are a picture of your great work, the mighty work that you've done in each of us. And so, Lord, it's encouraging for us to do this together, to join together. Because none of us walks this life alone. You have given us a fellowship of believers. And we're in a safe place, Lord, and we, we rejoice and we give great thanks for that right now. Father, I ask that you would examine my heart, examine our hearts as we take a moment to consider what we're about to do. We don't want to enter into this celebration hypocritically. If there's anything in our heart that needs to be confessed, Lord, you give us that time even now to make things right. Thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. Thank you for the table that you set before us. Symbols of your broken body and your blood shed for us. We humbly come before you now to take communion together. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on up and take communion.
Luke 22:14 through 16 says, When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The Lord has put his great celebration with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's, he's abstaining, if you will, from drinking the cup, drinking the wine, until we gather together. He's, he's waiting for us. Now that night, it says here, he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's his promise for that right there. And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. See, everything changed. Everything changed on the cross. God made a new covenant with everyone. A new way to access his divine grace and salvation. He did what we could not do. He paid the price for our sins. He paid the penalty as well, so that we wouldn't have to bear it. And so he said, this is a new covenant. So let's take the cup in celebration. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, the truth that you bring to our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the grace that you've poured out upon us once again. Thank you for the reminder of the work that you did on the cross. Thank you for the promise of the future, of the mighty work that you have laid before us, Lord. Give us strength to walk. Give us grace as we come humbly before others. Let us have the message of eternal life always on our lips, ready to tell others to praise you. We thank you, Lord, for our fellowship today. We ask that you go before us once again. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and sing a song.
Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.